Hey, podcast listeners, one quick note before we start today's episode. Like many of you, I struggle to manage my allergies this time of year. So if you don't recognize my voice in the first half of this episode, you certainly won't recognize it in the second half. My apologies in advance. With that, from the podcast studio at Lano Realty Partners, here is our next episode of Beyond the Bite. The reality is this is serious work, right? You know, the former U.S. Uh, Speaker of the House, Sam Rayburn, uh, who's from Texas, actually said one time, any jackass can kick down a barn, but it takes a carpenter to build one. Commissioner Grant Moody, well, first of all, welcome to the podcast. This is your first appearance here. Thanks for having me, Eddie. By way of review, you were appointed by the Republican precinct chairs to be the nominee in the November 2022 election. And that was because Trish DeBerry had given up her seat in order to run for county judge. That's right. So based on the timing of when Trish resigned, it went to the precinct chairs to determine the nominee for the party for November 22. I won that in the summer of 22 and then was on the ballot in November. And the sitting incumbent after Trish vacated was former Justice Maria Lynn Bernard, who was the interim county commissioner and was also considered by the precinct chairs, but they chose you. That's correct. Over a wide field of people that wanted to be considered or were considered. Yeah, I believe there were seven candidates. Tell us a little bit about your first year in office. Well, it's been a, been a great year. Um, was it what you expected? It was everything I expected and then some. Okay. You know, we dove in. We got a great uh, team assembled. I uh, got a great staff. Paul Jimenez, my chief of staff. Uh, Misty Spears is my director of constituent services. We really just dove into the, the problems, you know, facing our county. And I think that we've been able to accomplish a great deal you know, in this first year. But, you know, county business, first of all, it's a full-time job. Anybody who tells you it's not uh, doesn't understand or they're not going to do a good job. It really requires dedication. It requires a lot of time. Uh, it requires a lot of meetings. Uh, and it's not a nine-to-five job either. I think that if you're going to do the job well, you got to really be dedicated to it. Well, and when you say it requires a lot of time, it's not just time at the office, at the, mm -hmm. in the commissioner's court, because technically you really only meet once a week. But you have to go get briefings by county staff. You have to go to town hall meetings. You have to visit with the sheriff's department and the jail and all the other county departments to see what's happening or what needs to be fixed or how do you revise or adjust things that aren't working right? Yeah, I totally agree. I think that there's all those uh, seeing the problems firsthand. You know, we went down to the uh, the jail. We toured the jail uh, early on in our uh, first year. And, uh, you know, at the time we heard from them, they said they hadn't seen a commissioner down here. I'm not sure, you know, the the history there, but I said, you know, if, if there's issues here, we have problems with staffing, we have issues with maintenance, you know, I want to see the problem. I want to be there. I want to see the problem and, and be able to work towards a solution. You know, I think that there's there's a lot of things you mentioned, you know, it's breakfasts, it's lunches, it's galas, it's events on weekends, it's unaccompanied 
uh, burials at the Fort Sam Cemetery, you know, all these things that, you know, are part of the job. And I think it's important that you represent the district, represent your constituents, but you make yourself available and you show up. And all those things don't happen Monday through Friday, nine to five. Absolutely not. No, they're around the clock. You mentioned the jail. There was an issue a couple of years ago, a year or a year or two ago, where the issue was 400 some odd locks that weren't operating correctly. Uh, what is your take on the current condition of the jail? Well, I know that there's been a lot of uh, investments in making repairs and fixes there. The, the facility is old. There, there are maintenance issues. Uh, we continue to work through those with county staff. I think we're in a better position now than we were then. But, you know, there's, there's always additional work to be done. I think the bigger issue that we've kind of focused on in the last year has, has been more around staffing. And the sheriff's department, the detention officers have been really understaffed. And that has drawn in this mandatory forced overtime where these detention officers can't go home uh, because there's nobody to take their watch, uh, nobody to take their their spot. And so that has been really, you know, demoralizing on those detention officers. It's created some safety issues. And ultimately, that's part of the reason we made some fixes around the pay uh, for those detention officers and, and trying to uh, be able to hire and retain new detention officers to make sure that we can properly staff the jail. So I'm assuming it's it's a it's a combination of several things. One is pay that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Number two is um, difficulty of the job. It's it's not the most conducive to a wonderful work environment when you're dealing with prisoners. Number three, the general difficulty of hiring in any sort of law enforcement field, which is police, sheriff detention officers, you know, any law enforcement field is, is experiencing challenges. Yeah. Shortages. I I think those are are great points. You know, there's a challenge within the sheriff's office. Um, You have the law enforcement officers and then you have the detention officers and, you know, it's always been easier to fill the law enforcement officer uh, positions versus the detention officers. Ultimately, we've we've tried to, uh, and the sheriff's tried to be able to pull from detention to promote into law enforcement to provide that opportunity for advancement there. Right, but um, it's it's definitely a challenge. Um, you see a, some other issues there as well. Uh, first of all, I'll mention versus other municipalities, other you know security services. Uh, you're competing. It's a marketplace, and. You know, that's why we have to be competitive with with what we pay and and our benefits and everything, or else we will lose those individuals to other college uh, police forces, uh, school districts, suburban cities. And we've seen that. So I think we've we've made a significant fix on that end. But ultimately, you know, there's there's still more work to do. And on the law enforcement side, I think that's just just critical from a public safety side to make sure that we get these additional uh, deputies in place. We add additional patrol districts uh, out there to be able to have more boots on the ground and make sure that we can reduce crime. There was another big issue that you led, and that was a tax cut. One of the things that you talked about on the campaign and that you said you were going to focus on was a tax cut. Why was this such a big issue for you? Well, because I think we have to live within our means. And I think that 
our property taxes are so high in Texas, and we have to find a way to reduce the the burden on taxpayers, especially seniors. We've been working on that for the entire year uh, in office, and there have been some some different votes around that. Uh, first of all, I would highlight you know we were successful first over the summer in getting uh, the university health system to a five percent homestead exemption. At the time, I said this is a step in the right direction, but we need to do more. I continued to uh, to push and and lean on them to to move that and advance it forward. And in December, we were able to get to a 20% homestead exemption, which is the statutory cap. And we're really proud of that. That is what we were pushing for. That's what we were asking for. And we got the maximum homestead exemption for UHS approved for taxpayers here in Bear County. And that's significant. And a couple other uh, items here on, on taxes, Eddie, I'll mention. First of all, when we had our budget, our budget came forward back in September. We uh, supported that budget because of the investments in public safety. You know, the 62 new deputy sheriffs that we, we had there, additional uh, support for, for law enforcement. But within that budget, there was another $20 million that was going to a reserve fund, which was for future spending. And so what we said at the time was, there's no reason, we don't need this money right now. Our reserve fund is, is uh, larger than, than it needs to be. So why can't we give this money back to taxpayers? So we offered an amendment to give that $20 million back to taxpayers. You know, I, I didn't get a second in the court. But, you know, every chance we have to tighten our belt and give that money back to taxpayers, you know, that's what I'm going to try to do when I'm on the court. So I've tried to cut those taxes at the county level, tried to cut taxes and was successful with our hospital district. And we're going to continue in the new year to try to advocate for other taxing entities in Bear County to get to that 20% homestead exemption because I think they should. Since you mentioned the hospital, I do want to ask you about that because university health system is not what most people think of when they think of a county run, a government run hospital. It's state of the art. It's cutting edge. Uh, for many years, it was the only level one trauma center in South Texas how do you, George on this, the CEO has announced his uh, retirement, but I understand he's going to stay involved in some capacity, but he will be replaced as CEO. How do you feel about his, his departure and his leadership? Well, I think that you make a great point. Um, UHS is a, is a very impressive, you know, operation and the care that they provide is, is, as you mentioned, top tier, you know, as, as George transitions going forward. I think it's very important that we manage this uh, transition well, wisely, the the board of UHS, uh, that they find the right replacement that's uh, ready and capable and willing to step up. I mean, this is $3 billion hospital. Uh, it's a massive operation. And, you know, it's it's important for our community. It's important for the partnership with UT Health. It's important for the partnership with the military and BAMC. And, um, you know, it's important for indigent care. Now, I do think that we have to uh, be thoughtful, you know, going forward on, you know, remaining more to that mission of indigent care and, and making sure that, you know, we don't crowd out the private sector, uh, so to speak. But, you know, the, uh, the success that University Health has had, I think, is largely due to the, the board and George's leadership. 
So Eddie, I'd also mention, you know, we've had multiple discussions at court um, that I brought up regarding trying to pull public health, mental health underneath the umbrella of UHS. To me, our hospital district, if it has health in the name, it should probably be underneath our hospital district and not being managed by by the county staff and, and our offices. And I would assume that's not just an efficiency issue uh, as much as it's also an expertise issue. Exactly. I mean, you think about the business world. I mean, you're going to put different departments uh, where they make sense, where they're grouped, where there's expertise. And that, to me, is an easy fit, right? If, if you're talking about public health, that should be tied to the hospital district and not, you know, downtown office. So you're not a fan of, but that's the way we've always done it. <laughs> there's, there's definitely, uh, um, you know, the, the history and it's hard to change anything. I, I've definitely seen that. Some of the things you think are, are uh, simple fixes have been the most challenging to, uh, to make changes on. You know, it's allergy season in Texas when um, you end up having a voice that sounds like an FM rock station disc jockey. <laughs> <clears throat> um, so apologies for the, uh, the raspiness, but um, you wanted to focus on combining public health and mental health within the umbrella and the expertise mm -hmm. of university health. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. So I hope we can have that uh, robust, informed discussion in the coming months and year. You know, I, I would also just mention to you on, on the, the budget front uh, going forward, you know, we've had this huge injection of federal dollars that came with uh, COVID, COVID and ARPA monies. We have been trying to invest that money wisely, you know, in infrastructure projects and, and things don't, that aren't legacy costs, uh, so to speak. And, you know, I think that it's important for, for folks to realize there's going to be a, a day of reckoning in the next couple of years because you have all these tens of millions of dollars uh, flowing into um, to different uh, departments, different projects, that won't get replenished. They won't be replenished. There's, there's no way that we can replenish those dollars. Um, it, it would take a massive tax increase that there's no appetite for. And so, you know, we're going to have to pick winners and losers and we're going to have to, um, you know, figure out of, of this spend, what, you know, has to go forward, but the vast majority of it is, is going to have to, um, to, to go away in the future because it just can't be funded based on, uh, our, county tax dollars. Well, that seems to add fuel to the fire of the idea of bringing it under the university health system umbrella. Great tying it back to that because... And I'm just know, curious, does university health handle allergies? Or, um, <laughs> they might be able to help you out. Yeah, I need to, I now, need to go. Yeah, so public health being funded by ARPA, um, that would provide them, you know, mental health as well, a means to be funded uh, underneath the umbrella of the hospital district uh, where there is more knowledge and expertise, but also where there's additional funding sources uh, versus the county. You know, so that's not on our budget uh, that could uh, be transitioned to, uh, to UHS going forward. So I think there's a lot that, we can we can do to uh, improve um, 
that in terms of efficiencies, in terms of organization, but ultimately we have to think about where this is going to go in the next two years once these ARPA dollars are expended. While we're on the topic of health, I want to bring up another issue that is specific to you and your district, and that's this septic issue in the Timberwood Park area, the Timberwood Villas. First of all, for those who are not familiar, this is an area that is east of Camp Bullis, but west of 281 and north of 1604. Correct. Okay. So they have been struggling with a septic issue for a, quite a while. Mm-hmm. And um, so describe the situation and then explain how you got involved. Yeah. So this story goes back almost 20 years, I, I believe, when it was first permitted. But you know, for, for 10 years, there's, there's been this community septic that has been, um, the, the homes were overbuilt and ultimately led to this disaster of septic, you know, um, sewer flooding out into these backyards of this neighborhood. HOA board has done everything they possibly can. So for the last four or five years, they've been tied up in litigation with the original developer and the builder. Uh, to to try to reach a uh, a settlement, they this past summer they were able to reach a settlement with those individuals, and that uh, that settlement will will help them defray the cost of the ultimate solution, which is to tie them into sewer, which is the only option for them. And originally, was the issue a system that wasn't working or was it too many homes and the volume was too great for the size of septic system that they had? Yeah, the the volume was too great. So the original plan that was permitted for was two bedroom homes. Somewhere in the mix and the transfer between the developer and the builder, the builder started building four and five bedroom homes. Clearly the septic system wasn't designed for that and it's been, you know, overrun for the last, you know, five years at least. What size of a development are we talking about? How many total homes? 75. 75. Mm -hmm. And there are sewer lines in the adjacent areas that they Mm -hmm. can tap into? Correct. So ultimately, the, um, we heard from the community, the community reached out to our office. They said, we need help, you know, and our job representing this this area and these constituents was to help them. So our staff reached out, we went out and actually did a, uh, a tour. My director of constituent services went out there with environmental services and looked at the septic field. It was bad. It was really bad. Uh, environmental services uh, put out a letter that said, you know, this is a safety hazard, not only for this community, but for, you know, the entire county. This area is adjacent to Mustang Creek, which is also over the Edwards Aquifer. Okay, so it's a recharge area yeah, for the aquifer. exactly. And so the team there at Timberwood Villas had done everything they possibly could to try to find a legal settlement. They got to a legal settlement, but that was still not going to uh, provide for a solution. Ultimately, you know, we went to work and tried to find a solution to fill the gap, which is ARPA dollars. One of the special carve-out categories for ARPA dollars are water and sewer projects. So as we mentioned earlier, I think that infrastructure projects are a great use of ARPA dollars. And so we pushed forward with 
opening up a call for projects within water and sewer. And ultimately, uh, last week, they were able to, uh, to get approved for that in court. And we're excited about that. But again, it wasn't just because it was the right thing for the community and to help those constituents who, through no fault of their own, ended up in this situation. And there was no way out. It's because it's not just them. It's the Edwards Aquifer. It's the creek. It's our entire community. And so we needed to do something, and we did. And I think that, you know, speaks to, to leadership and not just, you know, trying to score cheap political points. So um, it, it was an issue that would affect both surface water and underground water. Yes. Okay. All right. You just got back. I want to shift gears here. You just got back from Israel. Tell me about your trip. I understand this was an American-Israel Public Affairs Committee trip, which I've been on one of those. In, in 2010, I went. So tell me how that came about, and then tell me what you learned when you got there. Yeah, it was a really powerful trip. I first became involved uh, with APAC back in 2018. I went on a veterans outreach trip to, uh, to Israel. Uh, that was a very different trip. You know, a longer trip, got to see more of the sites, see more of the country, talk about the economy, vibrant economy they have there. But this was, this was different. You know, I, I've stayed involved and engaged uh, since 2018. But with October 7th happening, um, APEC had reached out and said, hey, we're going to go back into Israel. Uh, this is going to be the first trip back into Israel. Would you go? And, you know, I talked about it with my wife, um, talked about it with my team. And, and I said, I think this is the right thing to do. And when you say October 7th, that is the, the day of the Hamas massacre. Yeah, Black um, Saturday. Right. So um, that is part of the reason I felt so compelled to take this trip. And I think, again, it's important to note this, not a dime of taxpayer dollars were spent on this trip. So usually when APAC takes you on a trip, it is paid for by their foundation. Correct. So exactly. But we have a large presence of uh, a, a large Jewish community here on the north side of San Antonio. In fact, I just recently spoke to the local Jewish community about the trip, and it was a really powerful and emotional event. You know, them getting to hear firsthand, you know, from from their county commissioner about what we saw on the ground but I wanted to represent them and make sure their voice is heard. You can't imagine how many personal stories I heard about, well, you know, my grandson picked up on October 8th and flew to Israel to join the, the, the IDF reserves and Israeli serve. defense forces. Or, you know, my, my brother-in-law was in Israel and one of the kibbutzes that was attacked. Everyone has a story. They know someone who, you know, knew somebody in Israel who died on that morning or who was taken hostage. And so it's, it's real. It's very real and it's very raw for them. And so I wanted to represent that. I also wanted to bring visibility to the, the crimes against humanity that occurred on October 7th because we have such short attention spans and the international outcry today is around the, the war in Gaza, and we've lost track of what happened on of October the massacre. 7th. Yes, 1,200 Israelis were brutally murdered, uh, slaughtered. Some of the pictures are just horrifying. You had instances of, of torture, 
of gang rape, of, you know, kids being killed. You had 240 hostages taken into Gaza, some women, children, elderly, including a 12-month-old that was, that was taken into Gaza. They believe that died in Gaza, uh, reportedly. And many hostages remain. 136 hostages remain. Six are American citizens. And, you know, the, the sad thing is, and we actually got to speak to one of the, uh, the parents of one of the hostages while we were over there. And what they said is, where is the international outcry for the U.N.? to intervene for the International Red Cross. Uh, they haven't had any kind of proof of life for their relatives and their family and friends that are hostages in Gaza. They haven't had any, you know, proof of medical care. You know, it's been 110 days now. And, you know, we're, we're continuing to talk about a ceasefire instead of talking about making the sure that these hostages relief. get home. Yeah, just recently... It was reported that Israel offered a two-month ceasefire to get the hostages, all of the hostages returned, and Hamas said no. So if, if we want a ceasefire, Israel's offering a ceasefire. Hamas is the one who won't take the ceasefire. Hamas they is want the to hold that's... on to the bargaining chips, which are those hostages, those poor, innocent civilians that are still sitting there in Gaza. One of the things that I guess that has surprised me is – I've seen interview after interview after interview of Palestinian protesters who, not all of them are Palestinian, but people who are supporting the Palestinian cause, who are chanting from the river to the sea, you know, let Palestine be free. And when they're asked what river, they can't answer. What sea, they can't answer. Yep. And when they're saying stop the genocide, what they're not aware of is the very chant that they're giving is basically supporting the Hamas genocide and uh, the wiping out of of Israel as a country mm-hmm. and of the Israeli people. Yeah, well, I don't have to tell your your listeners, but we're talking about the Mediterranean Sea to the Jordan River. Yes. And that would be the elimination of the Jewish state of Israel. So they're basically advocating for genocide. And, you know, it's, it's really... Um, it's sad to see the lack of understanding around the issue. We've seen it here locally, but, but that was part of this trip as well. I think to, to bring this back, you know, we're going to continue to look for opportunities to go out and, and talk to folks. Maybe that's at colleges, maybe that's at other community events and make sure that, that folks understand the situation. And when individuals are out there advocating for a ceasefire, they are playing into Hamas's hands. Hamas is a terrorist organization that slaughtered, Israeli civilians. We have to think about this in terms of we need to support our friend and ally and make sure they are able to defeat the terrorist organization that brutally, you know, slaughtered civilians and raped women in their villages rather than, you know, trying to um, ultimately uh, support Hamas in this. And and I'm not saying that, that those individuals are, are are trying to do that. They're trying to protect Palestinian civilians. But let me say this, the Israelis are doing everything they can to avoid Palestinian civilian casualties. But Hamas, Hamas is, is actively working to ensure there are civilian casualties. That's part of their propaganda. They, that's why they build tunnels underneath schools and hospitals. That's why they have the hostages held there. 
And it's why they put the the missiles in the yeah launch missiles from the hospitals and these are these are all war crimes, Eddie. So why is the international community not putting the pressure and the spotlight on Hamas, and instead we're talking about Israel? It's wrong. So it's it's interesting because this is this has become a local issue from the standpoint of Mm -hmm. uh, the attempt to offer a ceasefire resolution at the city council level. Mm-hmm. Um, and that became uh, quite a big deal. Uh, recently, City Councilman John Courage announced his uh, run for mayor, and his event got interrupted by Palestinian uh, protesters. And the city council meetings are also now being disrupted. So this is going to continue to be an issue uh, here in San Antonio. I was just going to say, first of all, I'm glad that that local ceasefire resolution appears to be dead. Again, I've, I've said, I think it's, it's bad for our friend and ally Israel. It's bad for the United States interests. It's bad for the world. So I'm glad that it's not being brought forward. And I hope it, it isn't brought forward in the future. One of the things that I learned in 2010 when I went was that Israel at its narrowest width is nine miles, which at that time in 2010 was my daily commute, the length of my daily commute. So it made it very easy for me to understand how little time it takes for a rocket to actually land when it's being launched from right outside of uh, Israel borders. And I think if people truly understood it was Motorola invented the cell phone, but it was the Israeli division of Motorola that did that. Intel has been the basis of the computer chip but it was the Israeli division of Intel that was at the heart of that. There's a great book called Startup Nation that talks about all the entrepreneurial efforts. And if you look at now in Israel, they've introduced drip irrigation because they live in a desert and also all their work in the cybersecurity uh, area, which is pretty, pretty astounding. So we have a, a strong, long lasting relationship with Israel and, I'm glad you were able to go on this trip. And No, I appreciate you bringing some of those points up. I would also say within defense, you know, uh, the Iron Dome, Arrow, some of the other uh, anti-rocket, anti-ballistic missile uh, technology that Israel has actually tested for us and for the world repeatedly because they use it, you know. I know that there's also partnerships around uh, border security, which I think we, we all know needs to be improved, that... Uh, the Israeli Defense Forces and and sharing that with uh, their American counterparts to, uh, you know, when it comes to finding tunnels, um, eradicating tunnels and and other things uh, that they've had to deal with for decades. And I think it's also important to realize here, we've very much heard through the media this focus on Gaza. But when I was there, there were literally strikes from Hezbollah in the north coming from Lebanon, hitting Israeli homes, military targets in the north of Israel. And you don't hear about that a lot here, but literally um, there's a war on two fronts right now in Israel. And that's driven by Iran. They're ultimately the backers of of Hezbollah and, and encouraging Hamas. And so the world's watching. The world's watching. Iran's watching. Hezbollah's watching on what happens with Hamas in Gaza. And we need to make sure that they get the right message. 
One of the other things I saw on my trip was a children's playground that was built inside a bunker, an underground bunker, so that kids would be safe from rocket attacks. I also saw a Monopoly-style game that children were encouraged to play that taught them where the safe house was that had the the underground bunker in the backyard. You know, there's a, a home in, in each neighborhood that has a designated place where everyone knows when the air raid sirens go off is quite the issue. But, you know, I think you make a point. Sometimes we take our own freedoms for granted here in this country. And um, I'm glad you were able to make the trip and, and come back with your your perspective. Thanks, Eddie. And I'll just also mention that, you know, I, I felt obligated given my experience and background, you know, as a Marine officer, having served in combat in Iraq and Afghanistan and having been to Israel before, I could bring that perspective from my my combat time from my experience in the Middle East. And I think I could tell that story. Uh, and so I think that, that that was an obligation I felt to, to go and, and see this and be able to bring it back. Let's talk, let's get back to the local, um, a couple of local issues. And one of them is uh, animal care services. You know, we've had a severe list of cases and incidences where people have been maimed or people have died from dangerous dog attacks. You've had some thoughts in this area on animal care services and, and the county's reaction. So share that with us. Well, first of all, it's it's tragic and it's sad and it should never happen. You know, some of the, the comments we've made, though, are these pet owners have to have responsibility and they have to be held accountable. You know, if, if, if their pets are off-leash and, and out there and, and causing these um, tragedies and, and attacking, you know, elderly folks on walks, uh, there has to be accountability there. And so I think that's the, the important message that everybody needs to know. If, if that's your pet and they are mauling a child, then you're going to be held responsible. On a broader issue here about what we can do about it, uh, I know there's, there's, been some discussions around animal control services and the opportunities to uh, to consolidate maybe between the city and county. That's something that we look forward to to having more discussions on going forward, and additional resources there to uh, to try to minimize this in the future. But but it's just sad. Ultimately, the root cause is you, you see these situations, whether it's uh, a deadly you know mauling or whether it's you know somebody in a home with a hundred pets. Uh, 100 animals uh, that they can't care for, and then this becomes a, a county problem or a city problem. People have to be responsible. Uh, if they're going to be pet owners, if, if they're going to take animals in, then they need to be able to take care of them, and then they also need to be you know, uh, responsible for them. One of the other issues uh, that you've uh, talked about wanting to work on in 2024 is transparency mm -hmm. in county operations. So yeah. what is it that you would like to see done um, that is currently not being done? Well, you know, we're looking for new opportunities here to be more transparent and make sure people understand it. Because the reality is um, very few people have ever been to commissioner's court, have seen, you know, what the process looks like, what we're actually voting on, uh, what we're working on uh, for the community. But uh, transparency, I think, is a big one. And anytime we can 
make government operations more transparent uh, for the community, uh, we should we should do that. And one of the things that has been brought up is kind of a a county checkbook that would provide. This was actually done in Ohio first uh, by Josh Mandel, who's treasurer there, uh, also a former Marine. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're we're going to try to better understand how we could maybe implement something similar here. And this is not something I've I've been able to uh, dive into yet with my colleagues, but I think that there would be support for making sure that we are able to show the expenditures that come out of the county, what they're going to, and make it easily readable, easily uh, searchable, you know, for anybody who wants to get that information, it's there. And I've heard Judge Sakai made make uh, transparency a mm-hmm. priority of his as well. So I'm he assuming said that multiple times. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming he'd be receptive to um, any sort of idea or tool that would help achieve that goal. Yeah, I hope so. Okay. Yeah. Good. All right. Well, we're coming up on the March primaries, and you're running for re-election, and you have uh, earned an opponent or two. Why do you want to run again for this seat? You know, we've been able to accomplish a lot in one year. You know, we talked about a lot of it here today. You know, the 20% homestead exemption, the uh, 62 new deputy sheriffs. We didn't mention 21 new constables, uh, which was a huge investment on our constables uh, across the county, which is part of our, our law enforcement and public safety strategy. But, you know, there's, there's more work to be done. And, you know, I think we have a, a good team that has been responsive to the community. We're working hard. We want to, you know, represent our constituents and, and solve these problems. I think my business background, as I said a year ago, I think it, it very much provides a unique perspective uh, that allows us to, uh, to look at these problems and, and actually find solutions, bring the right people together, identify options, find the best one that's, that's viable and move forward with it. So we definitely want to keep doing that for the community, and, and that's why we're running for re-election. It's primary season, and so there's, there's a lot of uh, different things that you'll hear out there. You've been openly attacked quite often. Absolutely. Uh, I'm not sure my opponent has, has seen a, a political attack that he didn't like. You know, but the reality is this is serious work, right? You know, the former U.S. Uh, Speaker of the House, Sam Rayburn, uh, who's from Texas, actually said one time, any jackass can kick down a barn, but it takes a carpenter to build one. That was a classic Sam Rayburn line and been repeated many a time over the years. Yeah. And it it does take effort and work to be able to uh, dive into these uh, problems. Yeah, because, you know, one of the attacks is, you know, voting too much with uh, with Democrat colleagues on the court. But anybody who's actually been to commissioner's court and I'm not sure my opponent has been. I've never seen him there. He's never approached our staff or our team, and I've, I've never seen him in court. But 90% of our votes are consent agenda items. 95% or more are nonpartisan issues. So, Well, the septic tank, was that a Democratic septic tank or a Republican septic tank? I don't tank know, that but that bad? stop sign is. I saw that stop sign. It's definitely a liberal yeah. stop sign. <laughs> So, and that's one of the challenges is that in many cases, you know, although you're elected on a partisan ballot, Mm -hmm. most of what you handle at commissioner's court is not a partisan issue. Exactly. 
similar on with the city council. They're not elected on a partisan basis. It's a nonpartisan race and potholes and street lights and public safety. Those aren't partisan issues either. So yeah, it's, it's really just a matter of um, focusing on the issues at hand and trying to solve the problems. Yeah. And, and at the end of the day, I'm one, one vote. The makeup of the court is four Democrats and one Republican. If I want to accomplish anything for the North side, for the precinct three, then I need to get to three votes. That takes work. That takes, you know, work in relationships that requires, you know, thoughtful work by staff. But just coming in and and like a bull in a china closet isn't going to be helpful in order to advocate for those issues for the North side. A homestead exemption, being a good steward of taxpayer dollars and solving constituent issues have been the focus of Bear County Commissioner Grant Moody's tenure so far. In 2024, he hopes to make headway with an initiative to make county business, dealings, and contracts much more transparent. Beyond the Bite is a production of Aldrete Strategic Partners. It is edited by Nick Chamberlain of Every Word Media. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe, give us a rating, and share it with a friend. Until next time, we thank you for listening.